Find Genesis 49 in your copy of the Scripture, please. Genesis 49. We're going to look tonight at the subject matter, blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. We won't be covering this exhaustively tonight. We'll sort of be hitting some of the high spots uh, in Genesis 49. And then we'll break over into chapter 50 as well, the Lord willing. We will close out tonight our, our series studying through the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. Genesis 49. Beginning there in verse 1, it says, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters. You will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion who crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, 
because of your Father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your Father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Now, folks, when we come to Genesis 49, uh, we perhaps could not be any further away from American culture than we are when we come to this chapter. Because we don't think of having all of our loved ones gathered around a deathbed while the family patriarch, so to speak, pronounces either blessings or cursings on their children. We just don't do that. Now, granted, we do gather around the bedside of, of dying loved ones, and a lot of times in moments like that, a few last words are exchanged. Uh, we tell the person how much we love them and, you know, all those niceties that go with that. Maybe some memories are recalled. And uh, hopefully everybody will be able to die like the Apostle Paul when he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course, and i fought the good fight. Hopefully we can all say that. But again, what, what we are seeing happen in Genesis 49, we don't really do this. But they did in, in biblical times. They would gather around the bedside, and the patriarchs would pronounce either blessings or cursings. Now, when we last met, we saw that Jacob had claimed Joseph's two sons as his very own, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what I mentioned about Genesis chapter 48 was an official adoption ceremony. Jacob is saying, who are these. It's not that he doesn't know who they are. He knows who they are, but he's asking, who are these? And Joseph is saying, these are my sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then so begins the official adoption ceremony where the two sons of Joseph literally become reckoned as being Jacob's sons. And now we saw what else. Jacob did, that Joseph opposed to. He switched the order, right? He gave the blessing to the younger. 
and that the older would serve the younger. And I mentioned how all through Scripture we see the emphasis on the secondborn. All through Scripture we see the emphasis on the secondborn. Which is a testimony to us in the New Testament that it is our second birth that counts in the eyes of God. Well, we come to Genesis 49, and Jacob knows that he is dying. From time to time in the past couple of chapters, he has thought he was near death, but God gave him 17 years in Goshen that he did not think he would have. He's had the blessing of finding out that Joseph was still alive, being reunited with Joseph, and again, even meeting Joseph's sons. So he's had, he's had this additional blessing that years earlier he would not even have thought he would have had because he thought Joseph was dead. Well, after blessing the sons of Joseph, he gathers his other sons around him. And he starts with the oldest. So if you're taking notes tonight, I want you to note, first of all, the blessings and curses on Reuben, Simeon, and Levi in verses 3 down through verse 7. And what is it that we learn here from verse 3 and 4 in particular? What is a principle that we learn here in Scripture concerning Reuben? Anybody want to venture a guess? It has to do with sin. What could we say about sin and what Reuben misses out on here? Does that give you a hint? You miss the blessing. So what could we say about sin? Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Do you lose your salvation over sin? No. But you most certainly lose blessing. Paul in Galatians 6 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever, whatsoever a man sows, this shall he also reap. Sin has consequences. Now folks, in modern day American society today, people laugh at sin. They mock it. Anytime Hollywood portrays it, it's a laughing matter. Or it's something to celebrate or rejoice in, right? It's something that people take lightly today. Or they act like it doesn't really matter. But it does matter. Sin has consequences. It's not a light issue. Folks, we need to remember we serve a holy God. And the Bible says God cannot even look upon the wicked. Sin is no laughing matter. 
God doesn't look at sin the way you and I do. It's always very serious in His sight. I want you to remember with me a moment about Adam and Eve. What happened with Adam and Eve? They lost their place in the garden because of sin. They, they didn't take it seriously enough and they thought they could get away with it. They thought their eyes would be open and they would be like God. Then what happened in the family unit? You know, the battle of the sexes began between Adam and Eve where God told Eve, you're going to desire your husband's place of headship in the home, but he's not going to surrender it over to you. He's going to rule over you in a domineering type fashion. And so the battle of the sexes. And he told Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth now. He told Adam, Adam, your work that was to be joyous and fulfilling, you're now going to have to work by the sweat of your brow and the fields are not going to produce for you very easily because there's weeds and thorns and thistles that are going to grow. So, I mean, from the very beginning of the Bible, what do we see? We see that sin has consequences. We can say the same thing for the older sons of Jacob here. Now, normally, Reuben would have been in the best position in the family being the oldest, the eldest born son. The chief inheritance would have gone to him and the best blessing would have gone to him. But what is it that Reuben had done? Slept with his father's concubine. Was that simply a sin of lust? It was more than that. It was that, but it was more than that. What else was it? When he slept with his father's concubine. There was great dishonor, but there was something else going on there too. It was a presumption on his part that Exactly. It was sort of an alpha male type action. I'm going to be the head now. I'm going to be the most important male in the family. I'm going to take my father's concubine. So it was a play for power, for preeminence in the family. I'm going to grab what I want to be mine in the family concerning position. Sure. Could have, been, could have been a slam on his dad because his dad didn't love his mom the way he loved Rachel. And so right off, he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. So maybe Reuben is thinking, hey, maybe this is going to go okay for me. But then Jacob says, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. 
Do you know if you were to trace from here on out in the Old Testament, Reuben and his descendants, gradually Reuben and his descendants will factor in less and less. And no one that significant will come from his line. If any of you have Dr. James Boyce's commentary on Genesis, you ought to go home tonight and read what he says about Reuben and how he traces from here on. There's a downward spiral through the Old Testament and he charts it out. A downward spiral about Reuben and his life and how less and less they factor into the Old Testament story. You think of what Reuben has done here. He sinned against his father. He sinned against himself. But he has affected his position in the family. He thought he was grabbing power and he surrenders what could have been his rightfully in the family. That says something to us, doesn't it, about not waiting on God and doing things God's way. Sometimes we end up paying a bigger price than we think, right? Then we come to Simeon and Levi in verses 5 to 7. We remember what they did. What is it that they did that was so wrong? Let's, let's go back through some of the narrative that we've been through in the book of Genesis so far. What, what is it that they did that was so wrong? Yes. Remember Jacob is leaving Laban's. He's on the way back. God has told him to go back to Bethel and worship him there. And so he's heading back to Bethel. He meets up with Esau in a very dreaded meeting. Doesn't turn out to be so bad at all. Esau is full of grace and forgiveness. Um, and so after he meets up with Esau and they kind of hug and kiss and make up, so to speak, uh, Jacob tells Esau, just don't worry, I'll follow in behind you. I've pushed the children and the women and the livestock hard enough. If I push them much further, they're going to die. I'll get there when I get there. Just kind of go on. So Esau goes on and Jacob takes his clan and he goes on. And he stops at Shechem. Why he doesn't go all the way back, I don't you know. Only God knows. But he stops there. And he pitches his tents there. And he sort of stays in Shechem. And there in Shechem, Hamor is the leader of the Shechemites. And Hamor has a son by the name also of Shechem who rapes Dinah. Then he decides he wants Dinah to be his wife. So Hamor and Shechem get together. They go to Jacob, Jacob's sons, and says, look, we want to make a treaty with you. And let's agree to live together. We'll give you our daughters 
You give us your daughters, we'll trade sons and daughters, and we'll be one people, and we'll kind of benefit from one another. And, and uh, Jacob's son said, sure, we'll, we'll make that agreement with you. But first, you know, you're uncircumcised, we're circumcised, and we can't associate with you unless you become circumcised. Hamor and Shechem go back to their their elders and tell them, and they say, sure, well, you know, it's going to be good for everybody. So they go through the ritual of circumcision, and on the third day, when all the men are sore and can't fight, Simeon and Levi, by stealth, go into the village and attack all the men of Shechem and kill them. Jacob wasn't too happy about that. He says, we're going to be a stench to all the people in the land. Now, you brought trouble on us. And everybody in the area now is going to gang up on us. And they're going to kill us because of what y'all have done. What were you thinking? And so they were bloodthirsty men. They were men of revenge. They said, well, we weren't going to let them treat our sister like a prostitute. But again, they took matters into their own hands. Both tribes, Simeon and Levi, both tribes from here on out were divided and scattered when the children of Israel went into the promised land. Neither would end up being given a portion of the land. In fact, the tribe of Simeon virtually disappears. They're sort of amalgamated into Judah, and for all practical purposes, they disappear. Now, it's true there's grace extended to Levi. They were to be the priest. But as the priest who would be scattered throughout all, they would be in 48 different cities. They would have no inheritance of their own. So again, you see the consequences of sin and rebellion. Even though they thought they were doing right, they didn't. So you have Reuben, you have Simeon, and you have Levi who miss out on a portion of the inheritance because of sin. Okay? Well, secondly, I want you to see the blessings on Judah and his preeminence, beginning there in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, old Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Now, Judah must have been waiting on the shoot to drop as he heard his father pronounce judgments and curses on Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Because of their sins. Because Judah was likewise a sinner. So he's probably thinking, uh-oh, I'm not going to get the blessing either. Now what was it he had done? 
he, he's the one who concocted the plan to sell him. Yes. But, but what, what sin had he done that was so wrong? Anybody remember? He slept with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Okay. And what led up to that? You remember he had he had a son, Ur, who was such a wicked man, God took Ur's life. And so then Judah said to his second son, You raise up you take Tamar and raise up offspring for your brother Ur, since God killed him. And of course, the second son in line. Didn't, didn't obey his father. So God killed him. Judah's youngest son was too young to be given in marriage to Tamar. So Judah tells Tamar, wait till he grows up and when he gets older and of marrying age, I will give him to you to be a husband so he can raise up for you sons. What happens? Tamar goes back to her people when she sees that Judah's youngest son has grown up and has not been given to her as a husband. And she hears of Judah being in town. She dresses as a prostitute. Judah's wife has died. He sleeps with Tamar. She becomes pregnant. <coughs> Uh, Judah is told your daughter-in-law is pregnant. She's played the prostitute. Judah says she must die. And she says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns this staff. And Judah's like, uh-oh. And what does he end up saying? She is more righteous than I am. And so it's believed that Judah goes through a period of heart change. Further illustrated in chapter 44, when the silver cup has been found in Benjamin's bag, remember? And Judah tells all the Egyptian officials, Pharaoh and Joseph and their representatives, says, I will take my brother's place. You put me into captivity. I'll take his place. Because if my brothers and myself get back to Jacob our father and Benjamin is not with us, he will go to his grave in sorrow. And I cannot bear to see that happen to my dad. So you take me instead of Benjamin and let me suffer in his place. So my point being, Judah apparently goes through quite a heart change for the good. Yes. Oh, sure. Huge reversal. And what is this even prophetic of? Standing in the place of your brother. What's that even prophetic of? 
Jesus is. Yes. The point is, Judah has risen to the top as the son now who gets the greatest blessing. When you read of Judah's descendants, you find people like King David, King Solomon in that list, many of the great kings of Judah, going all the way down to Jesus the Messiah. Right? Yes. So Judah... Even though he's the fourth son, without a doubt, the chief blessing goes to him and that does play out in the history of the Hebrew people, culminating in the Messiah, who's of the tribe of Judah. Now, look at verse 10 because what we have here is a messianic prophecy. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Now, read on with me again in verses 11 and 12. I want to point out something here. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now, Dr. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis makes interesting observations of Judah based on these two verses. Through Judah, there will come a golden age of extravagant abundance, abundance and celebration in which wine becomes the symbol, wine being the symbol of prosperity and blessing, wine will become as common as what? Water. There will be such an abundance of grapes that the Messiah will tether his donkey, his donkey, to a choice grapevine with no concern whatsoever that the donkey, a mere beast of burden, might also enjoy some of the grapes on the vine. But the grapes will be in such an abundance, it won't matter. So he tethers his donkey to a vine. And there'll be such a surplus of wine that people will not worry about even using it as it were to wash clothes. Not that you would wash clothes in wine, but again, it's, it's, it's an image, it's an image that the land is flowing, not only with milk and honey, but wine in such abundance, you could, you could do your laundry in it and it wouldn't matter. Now, stay with me for a minute. Go over to John chapter 2. 
In John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding. And what happens at the wedding? First miracle. They fill the vessels up with water. Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. They fill up all the vessels with water. Jesus changes all of that water into what? Wine. And the best. But a huge amount, these vessels at this wedding, a large amount is turned into wine. Free flow. What's this prophecy here? That in the days of the Messiah, wine would be in such abundance, it would be as abundant as water. The disciples of Jesus, in their minds, knowing their Old Testament scripture, they make the connection, what's going on here, between wine and water, and the abundance being a sign that the Messiah has come, and so what does John tell us the disciples did after that first miracle? They believed on Jesus. They believed on Jesus. You see it, folks? Wine being so abundant, they're making the connection in their mind. They understand what's going on with, with this prophecy here. And here's Jesus. He's turned all this water into wine. They make the connection. And they believe upon Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Well, thirdly, I want you to see the death of Jacob and his final instructions. The death of Jacob and his final instructions beginning there in verse 29 of chapter 49. And I kind of want to cover some of chapter 50 along with this as well because the instructions Joseph gives that are similar. Both men gave strict instructions for their remains to be carried out of Egypt. Why? The reason... The reason why is because both men knew the promise of God. They knew that the land of Canaan had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. They were in Egypt. Egypt was not the land of promise. They were only sojourners there. They were strangers and foreigners there. Both men had faith. They had faith that where they were was not where God would always have them to be as a people. God had made promises to Abraham and God would keep those promises. So though they're in Goshen, God's going to be faithful to his word that he gave to Abraham. They're only sojourners and pilgrims in Egypt. They're just passing through. They know God's going to fulfill his word and carry the Hebrews back to their own land. And so they say, you make sure you carry our bodies with you. 
Now, of course, for us in the Bible, Egypt often becomes a symbol of the world. Egypt is a place of corruption. It's a place of false religion and false gods and the sins of the world. The promised, the promised land likewise becomes a symbol for us of our future in heaven. Folks, we are just strangers here. The world is not our home. And so we aren't to get too attached here. We are to be looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. We are to have faith that there is a future deliverance for the people of God. There is a future exodus for us. A future exodus out of our Egypt to the promised land. Just as there was an exodus back then, there's coming yet still a greater exodus for the people of God. And so we're to have faith in that. That we're going to be delivered. And so we're to live with expectation and hope. Now, lastly tonight, I want you to see the assurances Joseph gives his brothers. We've covered this in previous weeks. I won't go into too much detail tonight. But verses 19 to 21. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The brothers of Joseph are quite certain that the only reason Joseph hasn't taken revenge on them yet is why? Because dad has still been alive. So now that dad is dead, what's Joseph going to do? He's going to take revenge. Joseph is going to use his power and his authority in Egypt and he is going to punish us and punish us harshly for what we did to him when he was a young man. That's what they're thinking. Well, notice Joseph's response. It's a classic. Am I in the place of God? Joseph understands that God is the one who is sovereign over the affairs of men. Yes, the brothers had done a hideous thing to Joseph. But he's able to look back over the course of his life and see the hand of God in allowing it for good reasons. Now you know, that may be a tough lesson to learn when we're right in the middle of the hardship we're going through. But folks, hopefully we can all look back over the course of our life and see God's hand. There's the conviction here that Joseph, that Joseph has that God is truly sovereign. I hope you and I understand that as well. Life is not made up of a series of accidents and coincidences where we are the victims 
effect. I hope you don't look at life that way. That's not the Christian way of looking at life. You and I are not left to chance. God is directing our lives, and you and I can have faith in that. Folks, I think that's a good way to end Genesis because Genesis began how? Go back to the very beginning of Genesis. How did the book begin? In the beginning, God, and what did God do? God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis ends with the conviction Joseph has that the same God who created everything is also the one who is now guiding his creation along. I'm afraid that sometimes evangelical Christians today have more in common that, than we should with deists. Who were the ancient deists? What did they believe? The clockmaker mentality. God created the universe like a clockmaker making a clock and winding it up, setting the hands, winding it up, and getting it ticking, and setting it up on a mantle, and turning and walking away from what he's made and just letting it wind down however it will. That was what ancient deists believed. Some of our founding fathers were believed, in America, were, it's believed that they were deists, essentially, theologically. Folks, we are not deists. The God who created this universe is intimately involved in what he made. He's not just letting it wind down however it happens to wind down. Faith and what will be will be. And we're just the victim of a haphazard set of circumstances and all, not of our own choosing or anybody's choosing. And we just kind of can't help it. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is He directs what He creates. And He sees it through to the very end in the smallest detail. Your life, He sees through in the smallest detail. And the book of Genesis closes with that conviction on Joseph's part. And so again, I think it's fitting bookends to the book of Genesis. Genesis begins with Creator God and it ends with Sovereign God who oversees every single detail of that which He makes. Your life is not accidental. It's not coincidental. You're in God's hands. And you can look back now over your life and see that everything 
that God's been at work. And He's been at work for your good. It's what Paul states in Romans 8.28. That God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and those who are the, are the called according to His purpose. And go out of glory. Amen. Amen. So, the end to Genesis. The end of the beginning. The end of the beginning.